0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe there and we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice a month newsletter. Hello, my guest today is Scott Reynolds Nelson, the Georgia Athletics Association Professor of the Humanities at the University of Georgia, author of numerous books. His latest is Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World, and it is the subject of our conversation today. Scott Nelson, welcome to Historically Thinking.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Al. It's great to be here.
1: So let's talk about the Black Paths. You begin the book discussing the Black Paths and the travelers of the Black Paths. And I had a sneaking suspicion that at some point in the process of writing the book, you thought about calling it the Black Paths? <laughs> but maybe the editor threw their way in front of you, like uh, you know, like trying to push a trolley out of the way of uh, uh, you know, or no, a, a param out of the way of a trolley is what I was trying to say. But I don't know. I, but the, the black paths are fascinating and they stick with me. So what are they?
2: Yeah, yeah, the Chornishlaki, Slaki. Uh, the the, the uh, is a it's a, a Russian um, Ukrainian word for black paths, and they're ancient. Right. So they're they're discussed. You see all these medieval documents and maps with the black paths, which are travel routes that, uh, according to the Chumaki, the people who travel with these goods are are ancient. They go back to um, before time, before written communication. And it's how grain gets into cities uh, from the countryside and thinking about those black paths for me is the way of kind of understanding an economy and understanding how empires build up understanding civilization I
1: guess and at one point much later in the book you just you talk about how the right way of seeing the world is streams i would say right. and i would say streams going across Oceans, streams right. going da- down, sometimes down little streams, but not always. Um, but they c- connecting everything, and those are the streams. Those are the black, the modern black paths of the of the agricultural economy.
2: Right, right. And so w- we think about uh, when we think about the past, we think about those images of you know the red and the green and the blue. That we think of the capitals. We think of different empires and things like that. And if you're a grain trader, you think about where the food comes from, where it goes to, how does it arrive at the ports? And for them, for people who are in the grain trade, that's the most important way of understanding the world. And if you kind of put those eyeglasses on, which is kind of what the book is about, Mm -hmm. you see... The sort of tensions and the critical points uh, very differently, I think, and the sources of friction and the potential sources for revolution. And that's yeah. ultimately my my uh, man crush, Parvis, uh, is that. <laughs> is the character who who figures this out right who we'll get we'll out. get
1: to him in a little bit because I I, <laughs> I I i i I, work, I it's uh you bring uh this the man crush much up much further into the the front of the book but i, I this is my conversation so i'm going to move it around a little bit um, you- i wanted to but i what i want one of the many places in which this book goes is suggesting that we should probably reconceive how civilization began So I I think that, you know, we would say, oh, well, cities are created and it makes no sense. You put like the cities are created and that creates the farm because they need food. But what did they do? Did they build the city and say, hey, wait a second, we need some food. Let's start farming. No, of course they didn't say that. That would be silly. So what's what's your uh, hypothesis you lay out?
2: Well, so so there's been a lot of debate about this, but there's been this great work done by uh, geneticists using next-generation genome sequencing, uh, looking at teeth to identify Yersinia pestis, which is the plague which travels along these black paths. And what it shows is that there are a very long time before there are civilizations. We have these communities of... Um, Kind of grain producers who are trading goods over long distances. Uh, and back before the Neolithic era, we have people moving from place to place, dropping seeds along the way, and that those paths ultimately become the places that connect the place where food is grown, which is dry, flat places, to the place where uh, other things are, stone and wood. Uh, uh, Leather and, and and these other goods and the coming together of those is is what we call civilization, and that the civilizers quote unquote the emperors and other things like that are people who grab onto those paths and uh, build along them. So, so that's, the, that's a for some reason these people that the Chumaki,
1: the Chumaki, they, uh-huh. they we, I mean, thanks to genetic archaeology, we know they've been there for. 3,000, 4,000 years, that's not an exaggeration. So before the Scythians, right. before right. every stinking, freaking nomadic tribe that you can't remember from, you know, the late antique history,
2: right, right, right.
1: there were these Chumaki plodding around like ox carrying right. wheat back and forth. Uh, it, right. it, it does sound like a Microsoft sort of civilization game, kind of like that, you know. <laughs> right. But it is. Right. And, but that's. It's a really kind of extraordinary thing. I, it leads to leads to more questions that are like, why are they there?
2: <laughs> why? Right.
1: Do, why did they decide to do this? But right.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what? What your saying is what ultimately becomes a plague shows us is that food and other goods uh, travel much further distances than humans travel. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are these trade goods that are going from one end of uh, the Eurasian, um, you know, from from Ireland, even all the way to to Manchuria in a period where there are no civilizations that exist, but no humans travel that that distance. Right. And so what we see are just groups of people trading with each other and the goods then making this massive, massive, long connections uh, over kind of impossible distances, and that's well before any civilizations exist. And so that's one of the things they're carrying is grain. And so <laughs> those black paths, I think, are the where we start when we need to talk about civilization.
1: So extraordinarily enough, one of the earliest recorded poems, hymns, is the hymn to Demeter, which right. is itself a, a techne. It's, it's a way of preserving a yeah. certain type of knowledge about the grain process. Could you ex- explain uh, what right. does that
2: Right. So, so the standard argument is, is that, you know, um, Demeter has the daughter Persephone who's stolen and taken underground and she searches for her. And this is often thought of as a story of planting wheat, right? Uh, that, that she's buried underground and will come back later. But, um, it was around the 19th century that a classicist, uh, who's looking at the language, looking at the text point, from Oxford, pointed out that this is not a story about planting, this is a story about storing grain. For the next plant, that that what you have to do is put it in a sealed container underground um, to preserve it over uh, the winter, so that it can be replanted either in the spring or in the fall. And that what you have to do to preserve Persephone, the daughter of the wheat flower, the the seeds themselves, is 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 to protect it from either being colonized by fungi, which just turns it starts to turn it either either into grain or either to bread or or something. Um, or spoiled in other, in other kinds of ways. And so keeping it dry, keeping it underground, that's Persephone's story, she's underground. And then it's later when Demeter takes off her cloak, which is the, you know, the harvest, uh, sits by the fireside, uh, beats some wheat together. We have the, re- the kind of recipe in, in the hymn to Demeter to how it is that you produce uh, food from those, from those seeds. So uh, the presumption is that this story of of Demeter is really, and her daughter Persephone, is really a kind of story you tell children so they know what to do in the next harvest, right? After the harvest, you need to set aside, it's really 20% of the yield for the next planting. And if if you're on a farm, that's the important thing, right? G- growing and planting and harvesting, all that's good, but you need to be ready for the next year. And the crucial part there is to preserve it and store it underground in a in a safe, dry place.
1: Yeah, well, I love that. I love that whole analogy because uh, you know the line, uh, the border between nature and culture runs through a barnyard.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Right. right and uh so here we have something that is is high art in many ways this is and also mm-hmm. becomes high religion the eleusinian mysteries it's eleusinian it's eleusinian all also it's also something deeply practical um mm-hmm. uh and uh and far f- as as all farming has to be um the um this this is written down at about a time where there's extraordinary explosion of of Greeks from around the Aegean Sea, what we call the Aegean Sea, going everywhere. And we'll be talking about this hopefully in the next couple of weeks with with other people. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the most fascinating things is sort of this lost kingdom of Pontus, I think it is, that eventually Mm -hmm. will spread along the the northern and western littorals of the Black Sea. Um, Mm -hmm. so So from the time that the Iliad is finally being written down, the Odyssey is finally being written down, there's an international grain harvest without which these fascinating scintillating cities along the Ionian and Aegean seas they can't operate without mm. Ukrainian grain Ukrainian wheat so it's an right. extraordinary thing that think that's happening at 500 BC
2: Right. And it's it's kind of lost, right? It's, it disappears in the Middle Ages and afterwards. And so people know about these things because there are ruins all over the Black Sea, but, it's, but they're crucial. Right. And so the Iliad the Odyssey, and in part about that recovery, uh, in, in way it's a way, it's a kind of hymn to the Aristoi, mm-hmm. the people who deliver the grain from the Black Sea to the cities, the, their stories, their adventures uh, made more fanciful, obviously <laughs> There aren't a lot of uh, Cyclops And uh, things like oh, that on the
1: yeah. map. <laughs>
2: you never know <laughs> we'll,
1: talk, we'll talk about the Russian mob later
2: <laughs> But but that, uh, yeah So so the Aristoi are, are in these massive ships uh, Ships like that don't sure. cross through these oceans For uh, thousands of years later uh, The Romans don't have ships that large As, the, as these ancient Greek ships and um, yeah, and it, and they're filled, of course, with grain. Uh, they're making it possible to have these magical cities. Uh- in the kind of Greek, uh, ancient Greek world. It- I, I, I'm sorry you didn't sign up for this. I'm pretty sure you didn't sign up for this when you <laughs> when the title about how American wheat changed the world.
1: <laughs> no, but I was, I was happy to eat. Um, and then, I mean, a, a, in many ways, without understanding, without realizing it, Venetians and the Genoese recapitulate this entire thing. They recapitulate mm-hmm. everything, in, right? The, the ships aren't as big, but they're bringing grain from exactly the same spots. They even bring your Sina pestis to Europe from Kaffa. I and mean, it's like recapitulating the entire previous two thousand years. It's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and that second time is what we—the birth of what we call capitalism, right? Yeah. That's where we see uh, the a, a different, uh, you know, ensuring uh, that trade is goes back to the ancient Greeks, but but a, um, a you know, c- kind of making a profit off that trade, and then. S- but wait, 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 I market. mean?
1: Since i got a historian, you're trying to tell me the Irish story. The Irish story weren't trying to make a profit because I don't believe that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I
2: mean, uh, <laughs> it's, a,
1: it's a, maybe a, rein, a reinvention or redevelopment of capitalism, but at least it looks like to me that, you know, why else am I, I, I there must be some sort of incentive other than display and status to build a 10,000er.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I, I entirely agree. It's just uh, there are things about capitalism about being able to invest in shares, for example.
1: Right. Uh, This is the famous Stephen Epstein's, like my ancestors in Genoa. Little old lady could put a buy a share of a grain ship going to Kaffa for and grain and slaves to drop off to take to Alexandria, and then something from Alexandria back to Genoa. You know, this is this is how it
2: works. Right. So, so the, so there is risk, there is, you know, insurance, there is profit, but it's, it's made into a kind of, um, fungible asset which can be distributed and, and collected by everyday people that's that makes uh it's, it's part of what this makes capitalism different from the sort of ancient trade that I so
1: it's about. interesting how our definition of capitalism always gets more has to has to be more developed sometimes than it it's 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 thrown around uh, a lot um
2: it does it is uh
1: so let's uh fast forward to catherine the great uh, right now, the subject of everyone's favorite sexy miniseries. Uh, uh, but I don't think it will that sexy miniseries will talk about her interest in physiocracy. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's, what's physiocracy and what's it to Catherine the Great? And how is this the only thing she shared with Thomas Jefferson?
2: <laughs> so, physiocratic expansion that there you have these French. Uh, We call them economists now. They call themselves, you know, the economists uh, were, uh, they're not quite like Adam Smith. They're not, they don't believe in free trade. They believe that grain is the basis, uh, farming is the basis of an economy, that you need to protect that and you need to uh, put as few restraints on it as possible. So if you're going to tax, don't tax the farmer, tax the landlord. If you're going to uh, 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 engage in trade, you need to not put any limits on that trade, Uh, You need to allow markets, the prices of these things to go up and down. the, The French physiocrats are sort of making, telling enlightened despots in France how to operate their economy. And that language and that sort of explanation of how to do this is not exactly how empires worked in the past, hmm. and it's it's a recipe for a particular kind of way of treating agriculture that both Catherine the Great and Thomas Jefferson, as well as Benjamin Franklin, become obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And they say, "Oh, all right, so so the, the so the center of the world is not the center of an empire is not about expanding armies and building you know uh, lasting monuments. It's." Uh, taking grain and throwing it out on the water and selling it to other states so that you can generate some surplus and, uh, you know, allow that society to to contribute. And both Catherine the Great and Thomas Jefferson and, and, and Franklin are reading this and they forge these states which then go out and rob land <laughs> to the rob the plains of the people who are living on those plains, mostly mostly hunter-gatherers take away their uh livelihood and create a livelihood built on um on grain expansion some people call this settler colonialism it's i, I don't love that phrase but it's it it's, captures it's, that, it's hip it's new it's, yeah. <laughs> it's but, it, but it does capture what's going on that both yes. russia and the United States are making this kind of violent expansion into the Plains uh, on behalf of what I call physiocratic expansion.
1: No, well, what what, part of what's good about settler colonialism is it does, uh, is does decenter that process. It's no longer just the, something that you're doing. And I mean, you know, the, how to put it, Jacksonians were uh, poor Jacksonians were a lot more interested in, in sort of moving on to native lands uh, than mm-hmm. a lot of rich Quakers in Philadelphia. Um, it's, it, it, it it moves the whole, the whole impetus down to a lower level. But having said that, is it to Tocqueville probably who realizes the similarity between what he sees in America and what's going on in Russia? That's the famous ending of book one of the de- democracy in America. That uh, that they're... I
2: never got to that part. Tell me, tell me about <laughs> it.
1: Well, basically, he 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 goes on this peroration at the end, and he says they're both mm-hmm. of them are driving into the open spaces, dispossessing oh, them okay. of the people's. You know, right. Um now he mm-hmm. tends to. He is not. uh I, I should say, I, I people have accused him of underrating of violence on the American frontier against the Indians. This is not true. Not true if you actually read what he says. Um, but he certainly sees the Russian expansion as more violent, and he he might be thinking also the 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 expansion of the Caucasus, uh, tort, you know. And, and so I don't know.
2: It's it's interesting because I I gave a talk about this at Yale, and I was saying that the American expansion into the west is just as brutal and violent as the Russian expansion into the Caucasus and into the Plains, uh, the dispossession of the people in those areas. and. The pushback was, oh, well, you're, um, you're you're minimizing the American expansionism by comparing it to the Russian expansionism. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> the brutality of the Russian expansionism was it was so well understood in the 19th century. Like that was the definition of yeah. evil for them. And so it, it it was it was quite strange to to yeah. I would be interested Don't really understand how, how how violent and cruel and and horrible the russian expansion was to say american expansion is like russian expansionism is to yeah, um, it's Neither like, one of them was pretty
1: right no it's not it's uh but they they yeah, it's i'm afraid that they were all it was a was a room full of american
2: historians because that would uh, that, no, that would no, make but, it. Uh, it was a room full of historians who didn't know much about russian history i think so oh, that, so they that, that's that's uh yeah. But, but yeah they're both brutal and violent expansions and they're about taking planes yeah. and converting it to, to grasslands, converting grasslands into plains, uh, producing grain, and then uh, exporting it for an international market. And that's that's the the dream, the kind of utopian vision of the, physiocracy that's, that's born out. What? Um,
1: so we've, we've, they've got physiocracy. We've we've set that up. We've got this is Jefferson's Empire of Liberty. This is mm-hmm. his also belief in the in the the. The, the no, nobility of the yeoman farmer. Um, what are the sizes? On the other hand, uh, he's also dealing half of his country, including his half, and right where I'm sitting is, slave, mm-hmm. is a slave society. Um, uh, in other words, it's an economy that depends upon slavery in order to, to make money um, mm-hmm. for the, all the, all parts of the economy depend upon it. Uh, and also I hadn't realized this, but Catherine is legally changing serfdom for a nice German girl. she really shouldn't be doing this. She's changing <laughs> serfdom into become making it more like chattel slavery. Could you explain that?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, that was a surprise to me, but, but it makes sense in retrospect that she wanted land to be alienable and she wanted, she, she didn't like the fact that peasants had some sort of claim to the land. And so she increased in the, in the Nakaz, which she promotes after reading all these uh, physiocrats, she basically tries to make uh, Russian society as much like colonial plantation society as she can. And so um, it, it means that the, uh, the czar cannot take land from landowners. Landowners can sell land to anyone else, any other landowner, large landowner. Um, and the, uh, she calls them rabbi, which is the Russian word for slave, rather uh, than the, the the word for peasant. And and she in, basically in these rules tries to make them as much like slaves as as possible to make it possible for the land to be bought and sold on a on a market. So her dream is really again to uh, to have these farms that are producing grain, but she doesn't see it as you know uh, Jefferson's family farm exactly. She sees it as Jefferson Plantation, right? As as something with, um, you know, 50 or 100 enslaved or or enserfed workers who are producing wheat, uh, packaging it all up and distributing it over long distances. So
1: sort of a little after this period, by say 1812, 1815 thereabouts, sort mm-hmm. of certain rediscover, there's been a rediscovery of grain storing secrets. So that changes everything Again, could you ex- explain what that is?
2: Yeah, so that's that I found uh, w- w- quite by accident, and, and it's not well documented in any of the secondary literature. But um, it is—it's an important part of what Napoleon wants to do when mm-hmm. he invades Italy—is to figure out how the Romans stored grain underground. It had been lost sometime between 300 AD and 1400 AD. That um, this this ability to store grain underground, and so. It, it, European peasants in, uh, in the kind of mi- Middle Ages and afterwards are storing grain a- above in these rickets that dry the grain. But it doesn't last for very long. Rats get to it and things like that. But they understand that the Romans had this way, just, just like the Greeks did, of storing grain underground um, for long periods of time. Uh Alexander Macedon has this problem when he's when he's uh you know traveling around in this area that that uh he, he understands that farmers have hidden grain, but it's underground and he can't figure out where it has been. So the secrets of Persephone, they send out he sends out chemists, Napoleon sends out chemists into Italy, and they inspect these Roman ruins, and they figure out that you drain a dry grain, keep it around under 20% water. Uh, uh, heat it and dry it, and then once you've done that, you can cover it in a perfectly uh, sealed container. And so, the French word for that is silo, that <laughs> new invention, which is a re, really a reinvention of, a, of an ancient Roman uh, technique, probably an ancient Greek technique. And the American word for that is elevator. And this is new. It's an ability, it, it, and it makes it possible. To, for again for those 10,000er ships to travel over the over the ocean because you can send very large quantities of grain over very long distances uh, without worrying so much about their spoiling
1: so that's, um, that's there's a bring Jefferson back into this which is I, when mm-hmm. I read this part I thought there's a a line there's a couple of things in the notes in state of virginia where he imagines mm-hmm. how can we solve the problem with spoilage of grain once right. we solve that we'll be able to move towards a basically he's saying we can move away from slavery
2: right right
1: because he he knows like like as washington knows when he switches to grain in 1768 any good southern farmer knows that you don't need like the the labor that you need for tobacco or cotton is is continual labor you need it all the entire life cycle of the plant but for wheat um, I know that we just put in a we just put in winter wheat on the farm. You put it in and you wait, and you look at the sky and you cuss and you wait, and then eventually <laughs> you harvest. That's right, kind of how you do it.
2: Yeah, the month of the planting and the month of the harvest. Uh, and right, and, and so that it doesn't have that kind of year round requirement. And and Tocqueville understands that that that, that you know t- that uh, cotton and tobacco and things like that take a year round process on that that makes it now there is there are plenty of virginian enslavers who like washington and jefferson who are growing wheat um but but so the story i guess of this physiocratic expansion is uh a, a, a moving into the to these regions where the plains are producing a lot of wheat and then figuring out a way of getting it uh, across the atlantic that takes it's not until about 18 uh eighteen nineteen or eighteen twenty that it's possible to ship that across the Atlantic, but mostly what the United States is doing what we, mm-hmm. we think of the United States and the American colonies who are uh the american uh continental colonies is they're feeding this the the uh, slave plantations in the Caribbean yes and that that it's it's hard it 's easy to forget that and we think about it as cotton and things like that as being important but Napoleon and many of these other you know, imperial leaders think the, the it's really a provisioning area for the real value producing slave killing mm-hmm. uh, region between 10 and 20 degrees north of the equator, where cotton, I'm sorry, uh, tobacco, sugar, and um, these other drugs are, are grown for export.
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, there's, I mean, as like we're sugar going, and yeah. Why are you going to raise food on Barbados or, or horses when you can cover the place in sugar? So everything has to come for every part of life it has to come from the northern colonies.
2: And, and and intentionally so not just because you can't grow it but because you don't want enslaved people to have food i mean it, there's there's a there's a certain amount of starving that's required yeah, that's true to, to make slavery work on a on, on a on an island and that's uh, the food is coming from you, the Americans. And
1: you've also you've also got a garden designed for making sugar i mean there's a reason why you know when they started playing tobacco in jamestown they were playing in the streets. Um, mm-hmm. because they couldn 't get enough space <laughs> the, and oh. so that those those monocultures always demand or they 're tyrants when it comes to space, so mm-hmm. you know the the horses of Barbados were famous, they all were raised in Rhode Island mm-hmm. uh, uh,
2: yeah.
1: so uh so this is this is uh this so that this is the connection of we want to develop this connection of slavery and grain or the lack of connection but um let 's move to another plague. P-infestans. I can't pronounce this. What is this? fight Oh f- 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 no, I can't do it. P-infestans. It's the potato. Bl- it's the. Pl- it's a potato blight, is what it is. So yeah. what? What does that do for grain? Removes a prominent competitor. Um, and then.
2: <laughs> right. So so uh, it's it's Frederick the Great and other uh, European emperors that uh, European emperors and kings that try to. Uh, promote the, the spread of the potato and they spread this potato all across Europe. Uh, it's basically a peasant crop and it's widely adopted. Uh, the thing about it is that as it moves in, um, uh, in, in this area, the way it's replanted is by, um, not by seeds, but by uh, t- taking a, a piece of the potato itself, which makes them genetically identical. Now, for 10 for 100,000, no, no, for 30,000 years, uh, the potato had been followed by pea infestans. And so pea infestans was there in the Inca empire. Um, but for reasons that we don't fully understand, the first group of potatoes that was brought to the new world, uh, to the old world, was uh, didn't have any pea infestans. It's, it's co-evolved uh, consumer. And um, <laughs> these genetically identical potatoes are spread around, and they're, they make it possible. It, it, poor people's food is the potato; rich people's food is grain. And uh, this works pr- pretty well until P. infestans makes its way across the Atlantic in 1842. A breeding pair of P. infestans, so it's it's it has multiple life cycles, but it's got a, a breeding, um, and, and the way it reproduces is is complicated, but. It's a water mold uh, that spreads across. And then once it hits uh, Antwerp, it spreads uh, across Europe and Great Britain and wipes out potatoes in very large numbers. And it's kind of unstoppable. It it doesn't have black paths. It can travel uh, with wind. It can travel on butterflies. It can travel on birds. (laughs) And it it, uh, it just wipes out poor people's food. Throughout Europe,
1: So the, and we the, fam- know- the famine's not just happening in Ireland. It's really bad in Ireland. It's worse Absolutely. than anywhere else, but it's happening everywhere throughout Eastern Europe.
2: Exactly. And so it's especially bad in, in Ireland because of the way that land is redist- is distributed and people are on these tiny little plots and all they're eating is potatoes. But um, but yeah, no, much of Central Europe is just wiped out by this famine. It takes a little bit longer, 45, 46, 47. And the revenues of 1848 are really about this um this, this conflict because people are running out of food. <laughs> the res- response to that for empires, which have been putting up barriers to, to block grain from other places is to drop simultaneously drop barriers all around the world. And that's where we get what we call free trade.
1: So the potato blight is the greatest weapon in the free traders arsenal. Manchester Absolutely. liberal, Manchester liberalism rides to victory on top of the potato famine, the potato famine.
2: I mean, it's- right, and none of them. Yeah. Yeah. And none of them thought that this was going to lead to economic growth. They just thought it was going to, I mean, Peel and these other people say say that this is all about stopping revolution. Mm -hmm. They don't see it as any kind of uh, solution to economic growth or economic development. Nobody's really predicting that. But that's precisely what happens.
1: But but all of a sudden there's cheap food, lots and lots of cheap food. Uh, And as you say white bread became fast food which is it's extraordinary to think of it in that way but of course it's that way um people have starch they have they have quick carbs uh for the Mm -hmm. as and they're all clustering in the as they and they're they can cluster in cities now in, in industrial they can have you can have an industrial city
2: right right in a way that you couldn't before because food is so cheap the people who hate this obviously it's called ricardo's paradox that the more you know that that um as the sort of capacity to get grain from other places goes up um land prices are going to go down in rural areas and so landlords hate the idea of cheap grain coming from these two slavery empires the russian empire and the american empire and so the part of what i'm trying to do is really put American history in, con- in conversation with Russian history, not just during the, you know, the Civil War mm-hmm. and the end of Serfdom and it's like, but all the way back, really, to, these are the two edges of Europe and they feed Europe mm-hmm. um, or, or, and they struggle to feed Europe. The United States can't do it until 1865. Russia is doing it really from the time of Napoleon up until um, uh, the 1850s and, and the, eight, the potato famine makes it possible for Russia to feed Europe and makes industrialization possible in much of Europe.
1: So I want to get to the American rush in the 1850s and then the yeah. period of American Civil War but before that you talk about the creation of what you call the European consumption accumulation city which is right. not harmonious sounding but is interesting. So could you explain what you mean by that I mean thank, thanks to, thanks to cheap wheat <laughs> It sounds better in German but yeah, it, uh, oh, yeah. oh, it all it, it all sounds better than the original German.
2: <laughs> but uh, the consumption accumulation city is, um, so So once once you have pea infestants and once it's wiped out your potato crops and once grain is what you're feeding to uh, poor people, then it becomes very important to have long ports. It becomes very important for these consumption accumulation cities to, well, they draw people in because food is cheaper in cities than it is in the countryside, for the first time ever, really. So that uh, because if you have a deep port and you bring and the, and the grain is cheap, the last mile of delivery from grain to bread is cheap, that, that bread is literally cheaper in cities than in the countryside. And you tell that to a 10th century peasant, it, it, it would be impossible, right? Uh, well, I mean, but it, it it
1: it, it, You tell that to an 18th century peasant. Right. <laughs> right. That's the right. amazing thing. Or even an 1810 peasant and it's still not possible. Right. That's, a, that's, that's, that's right. the scale of this change is so amazing
2: right right and and that that inversion is so important for understanding European industrialization European urbanization and what European industrialization and urbanization Europeans are constantly European historians are constantly patting themselves on the back about you know this and that all these European advantages it's really just taking advantage of Russia and America uh, well primarily Russia which is the Simultaneously, the provisioner of Europe and the policeman for Europe, because when you have conflicts, uh, you know you send in the Russian cavalry to, to put down your uh, your peasant revolts and mm-hmm. uh, urban urban revolts and stuff like that, like the revolutions of eighteen forty eight. Uh, so, so that's the that's the, the transformation that we're we're talking about. It and, and getting our head around how important and big that transformation is is really, I think, that's how we get cities. Um, that's why we get accumulation of capital in cities. That's how we get foreign investment. Uh, that's how we get investment banking. Uh, yeah. Really,
1: yeah. All these, uh, um, yeah. It, it, this this book will drive warning. It's like there's a famous. I think Matt Groening had the sort of a taxonomy of professors, and the like the crazy professor, and like the, the the pro is that he's deeply inspiring. The problem is you might start to believe him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's what's wonderful about this book is that it's like let's start with what. we talk say about historical. I mean, history. History is a way of seeing, and this is a sub. This is a, a way of seeing the past and the present. Is this this way of seeing grain? It's really, it really is. Get it's given me a new set of glasses. Um. So let's talk about this. Uh. It, it's as you said, as you alluded to. It's often noticed that Russia and America undergo the movement away from chattel slavery and serfdom, really in terms of world history, almost the same moment, the same millisecond. Um, What happens in the 1850s that drives them to that? Not surprisingly, I'm just gonna say the answer is grain. But what about what about grain? Uh,
2: so what? Uh, so sorry. What what drives? So so the sim for Russia. It's it's a it's a complicated story about why Russia abandons serfdom. It's it's a really it's a kind of a complex accounting trick, really, mm-hmm. where um, the this this um, the Crimean War, which is which is you know uh, uh, World War I don't know zero point one or something like that. It's it's a <laughs> it's a war between uh, Russia and the Allied Powers about uh, Istanbul and and it's uh, the, the Russia's attempt to sort of take Turkey off the map and uh, c- control the gates of the Bosporus, which is a very important crucial grain port um, to, it, it, grain passing in and out of the of that port is is really that's the pulse of the world that's why justinian and and um uh, it, it, that's why we had these massive empire could go back
1: to the peloponnesian war in many ways that's yeah. the the, the mm-hmm. climactic battles of the peloponnesian war are fought on the bosporus why because of the grain it's all the grain you see i've completely converted but it's true that's what that's why they were there.
2: Right. Yeah. So, so the Crimean War is one in which Russia loses. So, quite surprisingly, right? It's it's at the top, really, of its of as a, as a kind of imperial expansionist power, and uh, France and uh, France and Britain together kind of take Russia out of the equation, and Russia faces a serious balance of payments crisis. Uh, most of the Russian banks are few, are making it possible to provide. Uh, loans yeah. to, to you, large partners. You as, as you write thus the empire's long term
1: problem was serfs, its middle term problem was serfs, and its short term <laughs> problem was paying for its fail- you're enjoying yourself, was paying for its failed war against Turkey, France, and Britain but also serfs <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> the, the so, book is full of oh, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, but so that <laughs> so they had to pay off their payments, and then they had the problem with serfs. So why were serfs? Why did they they circumscribe the entire political and strategic vision of the empire? Is what you're
2: what you're right? What you're making clear. Yes, yes. You're saying it. You're saying it better than I'm saying it. But, so I, <laughs> but what, I, I, But I'm still not sure I understand why. Oh, I see. So. So this this the story is um, basically that that serfdom the, the most dynamic part of the Russian economy is actually in Ukraine, right in South Russia. That's where the wealth is being generated. That's that's what Catherine the Great understood that that all of this wealth is being generated in these regions, and it's not a place with a great deal of serfdom. Ukraine does not have a lot of it, so. Um, all the whole banking infrastructure of russia is built on supporting serfdom and making it possible for large surf owners to do this but it's a, it's really family farms uh with about a thousand acres in ukraine that are producing much of the grain that's being exported a thousand acres or more that are being exported to the rest of the world mostly europe and that whole infrastructure collapses right around 1860. And the solution to that, the only solution to that is to get out of the serf business. And Russia does that by basically having both serfs pay for their own freedom. And that's that's how serfdom ends. Because the dynamic portion of the economy in Russia is not Russia itself. It's South Russia, what we now call Ukraine. And that's the, the sort of driving force. So it is capitalism and it's about grain itself, which is a two-month crop which doesn't need serfdom; it needs lots and lots and lots of mobile laborers but, uh, for the harvest, but it does not need serfdom, and so so it's it collapses. The the kind of whole imperial structure collapses financially uh, when when it's defeated in war. So
1: that's leading up to uh, to the end of serfdom. What mm-hmm. is concomitantly happening in the eighteen fifties about? About grain, because this is, there, there. there's math involved here too.
2: <laughs> so, so there's a lot, there's a great deal of grain. Oh, right. So there's a, uh, yeah, sorry. This is both financial history yeah. and social history. And so there is a financial story here, which is that uh, railroads become a way, the way of funding railroads replaces the old way of funding, you know, serfs. So Russia has got a whole banking system built around serfdom. The United States is developing a whole banking system built on expanding railroads to the West, and railroads themselves are kind of banks, which are selling land in small plots on installments to farmers who are going to settle these regions, produce grain, sell it, and buy more land. That whole banking slash railroad process, we, we need to think. stop thinking of a railroad as a train and think of a railroad as a bank. The railroad is lending. To farmers so that they can settle on this land, and it's getting paid back, uh, getting getting it paid back quickly by those uh, by those mortgages for the land, and this process works really really well in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and it works really crappy in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Virginia. So they start a bunch of these railroads and they never finish them because they can't make any money. Mm-hmm. Southern planters get ticked about uh, this massive expansion of people into Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and ultimately Kansas, and and they try to put a stop to it. That conflict is the conflict over westward expansion. That conflict brings us civil war.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is because um, there's no reason to go from, I mean, this is putting it too, too this is not the right way, but it's there's no reason to go from Southern city to Southern city. Um, There's, there's nothing to take. Right. And in the Uh, North, there's something to take from Indianapolis to Chicago, to Omaha, uh, to Minneapolis and so on.
2: Right. So, so you think about the goods that are flowing from West to East in the South and that's cotton. What are the goods flowing from East to West? Very little, you know, planters need suspenders, planters need plow points, planters need whatever, but, but, Enslaved people are not consuming many goods. There, there's some shoes once a year, things like that, but there are very, very few things consumed. Uh, that's very different if you're looking at Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. What's going from west to east? Lots and lots of grain. What's going from east to west? All of these nostrums and you know goods and things that are, sh- that are filling the shops that are in all of these small towns in Indiana, Ohio, and stuff like that. And so the railroads can send goods east and send goods west in the south they can send goods <laughs> west to east but mm-hmm. they can't send anything east to west that's not a problem for a road it's a huge problem for a railroad because you have to have the price charge double for goods, for from west to east, because the, the the trains are going back empty. So this is what professors
1: always say in the American Survey class when they we look at a map of the railroad in the Civil War. We'll say, well, the the railroads in the South they exist, but they're short and they just go to ports. And it's like you can see that there's the the implications. That's a real lack of vision. Um, but no, it's it's capital flowing downhill, isn't it? I mean, it's like it's like water. It's going it's going where it will go.
2: Right, and and so railroads are proposed, and it makes perfect sense to get the to get those the cotton and things like and tobacco from west to east. But there's nothing coming back, and the railroads fail again and again and again in the south. That's why they're state supported in the south. Mm -hmm. uh, They're they're at least fifty to seventy five percent owned by states because they can't support themselves. Uh, And uh, yeah, so it's a difference between north. So there's a banking railroad infrastructure that exists in the north. Uh, and those the people who are behind that infrastructure, I call them the boulevard barons, um, <laughs> are the ones who help to bring about a war, <laughs> a war over um, what's the West going to look like? Is it going to have slaves, enslaved people? If it's going to have enslaved people, the railroads are not going to pay. If it's going to be free farming and grain production, it is going to pay. And... Uh, This matters in the tens of millions of dollars to somebody like John Murray Forbes Mm -hmm. or these other people who are very strong Republicans, the people who support uh, John Brown and and West Virginia.
1: And these are guys in their like late 20s and early 30s, mid 30s, like the elderly among them are like 35, right? (laughs) Right. If like. right, right. I mean, these are so. These are young um, go-getters, um, and they and they they have they want to make money, and they also have passionate ideals. They they believe they they have both at once. It's they're a fascinating group that you talk about.
2: Right. They they they. It's it's funny because they are the one percent, but yeah. they're obsessed. They they hate the kind of one percent in the south. They hate those planters, and they believe that the planters mess up the land and things like that. And to just, they're willing to. Ultimately, believe it. So I don't want to suggest that anti-slavery sentiment is not coming from enslaved people. I don't want to suggest that anti-slavery. No, no, there there is not. Right. So so there really is an anti-slavery movement that's led by black people in the north. It's it's very important. But we also need to understand that there are financial backers who are very committed to ending slavery because they see it as not being a a kind of profitable uh, system for themselves.
1: We have to explain also a few things like, you know, how did the Republican Party get so successfully organized so quickly and so strongly? And and they're an answer to it, too. And then uh, how did these guys basically then win the war? Um, Right. By among other things, I mean, so from the perspective of, of this, the it's not just nitroglycerin and the telegraph that are important out of the civil war. It's the futures, futures trading. So these guys develop futures trading and that changes everything. Right. I mean, it's a, right. So can you explain that?
2: Futures market changes everything, and and I'm I'm here disagreeing with William Cronin, who sees the futures market as sort of growing up naturally inside Chicago, having connected with railroad shipments and stuff like that. And I want to suggest that that's not important. But the futures futures trade takes place during the Civil War, and it's basically where um, a future contract for grain is broken up into a hundred little pieces, uh, to you know a uh, thousand bushels or ten thousand bushels each, and bought and sold by traders. As the price of wheat goes up and down, many many people are participating. Not many many people, but dozens of people, scores of people are uh, buying and selling these this this future grain, and it makes it possible for very long distance delivery of grain, including at Chattanooga, and that's initially where the first uh, those first shipments of of initially oats and then grain are going to, is to save the Union troops in Chattanooga in eighteen sixty three, uh, because they are surrounded. By Confederates, almost entirely, you know, almost completely surrounded. Chattanooga is the best place to start uh, Sherman's march to the sea and and um, Sherman's march to the Carolinas. Uh, but to do that, you need very long distance, a covered, protected long distance grain travel, and that's what the Union Army puts together. We we tend to think about this as private people. We tend to think about this as you know. Uh, um, Tom Scott, maybe, or uh, the um, you know the the, Van, the Vanderbilt. It's that's not these aren't the people that do this. It's the Union Army, mm-hmm. the U.S. Army that sets up this railroad corridor with a lot and of these five corridors. Yeah. yeah,
1: with a lot of these guys, they brought in from industry and who go back into doing the same thing in within weeks, right, of the end of the war. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, so and 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 of course the futures shares make when you've got an army under siege basically you're taking right. a bet as a futures contract when you're putting on the price of grain and whether or not that mm-hmm. they'll win or lose that's kind of that that the-
2: right right and it's quite profitable if you think you know and the and and it's it's actually illegal to speculate in gold uh if you speculate you can speculate in gold during the war um, gold prices are going to go down if the union has a victory. They're going to go up compared to dollars when the when the union has a, a loss. But. Um but that's, that's actually illegal and considered an unpatriotic. And it's considered more patriotic to buy future grain, mm-hmm. expecting to resell it to the Union Army over time, um, and that and the price of grain is going to go up or down depending on those battles. If it's if it loses a battle, the price of grain is going to go up. If it wins a battle, the price is going to go down. And so people are going to participate in this futures market uh, and put capital into this system that's actually making it possible for these very long-distance grain deliveries. Stay, ordinarily, wartime is a terrible – wartime investment has no long-term benefits, right? We, we buy bombs. We buy Agent Orange. We produce all of these things, and there's no real benefits. People, to
1: people, people have a hard time understanding that, but of course, every, when you think about it, the most the, a lot of that stuff is expensive, and it blows up. Of course, right. Right. It's, 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 you know.
2: <laughs> so, so economists say wars are horrible, right, for right. economic development. But, but in this case, in this, this case. long distance uh, grain delivery device, which is the railroad corridors from Chicago to New York. And a futures market that makes it possible for for instant delivery of those goods, or not instant delivery, but instant buying and selling for for a later delivery, Um, that actually makes the United States a world power. And this
1: Uh, because it segues beautifully with the transoceanic telegraph and the futures, and all of a sudden. New and then higher pressure steam engines, and you've got all the inclinations. But the culture, the desire to do it, has long been there. And then all this stuff just falls in everyone's lap in 1865, 1866. And what talk about that?
2: Yeah. So so then so that's where Russia steals uh, America steals a march on Russia for for a hundred years. Rush, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson is hoping to compete with with Catherine the Great and, and uh, the successors, you know, farmers in the West are hoping to be able to sell grain in Europe, but they can't do it. Once the war is over, once the futures market is created, once you can buy um, wheat in Chicago and sell it on the same day by telegraph in Manchester, you will eliminate the, the, any danger of losing money, right? Uh, the only d- dangerous spoilage or something like that destruction of your your trip you get insurance for that and so the margin for grain you ordinarily a merchant gets ten percent these merchants get one percent but they they send millions of bushels of grain. Uh, and and so what we see is a very a kind of efficient market that takes place once you've got a transatlantic telegraph that goes all the way to Chicago, uh, so that you can buy that grain and, and ship it over, and um, and very deep ports in New York that, that are deeper than Odessa, and for that it's a sea change in the world basically as uh, the world's grain Europe's grain mostly comes from Russia for hundred years and then very suddenly. Around 1865 and 66, most of it comes from the United States.
1: So, and in, in, in a way, looking looking forward, um, I, I forget who it was that told me by even as late as as early as 18 no, it must have been 1858. A farmer near Urbana, champaign could be selling their grain to the English market uh, somewhere in central right. Illinois. It was already possible, mm-hmm. but to think of America as uh, isolationist in some sort of crude cultural way is it's crazy by 1873 yeah. i mean you can see the direction of american involvement in say the the great war of 1914 1918 right. based upon mm-hmm. this new connection of grain to the european market right i mean this is what you're arguing too the the the, yeah. the cord has been formed it's binding them right. together
2: Right. I mean, p- part of it, part of what I'm pushing against is the economist argument that national economies matter more than international economies, which is this, st- you know, GDP, GNP, all of these other things, you know, their, their economists will tell you that it's a very relatively large, a small amount of stuff that's traded internationally. And so that's not important. If you want to talk about the economy, you can look at it as one unit. I think that's absolute bullshit and has been absolute bullshit since 10,000 BC. And <laughs> uh, that, that there, there's enough goods flowing back and forth, primarily food that, that, that these, these are really important uh, a, a kind of international economy that we need to be thinking about going all the way back. And, and again, grain traders understand this. Grain traders understand that, um, that, that these black paths along which this grain travel moves is the rise and fall of empires. Ultimately, they defend, empires grow up, accrete themselves along these paths. And if you mess with the paths, the empires collapse. You can go to Istanbul and see the failed gates of, you know, uh, the ancient Greek a- a empires that are there, the the uh, Roman empires that are there, the Byzantine empires that are there, the the, the um, Turkish empires that are there. It's it's um, they rise and fall ultimately on these trading paths which are everything to the kind of fiscal financial success of these mm-hmm. institutions, which is, it's just their military success as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask that. How did cheap grain change European politics from say 1870 to 1900? Uh, Cause so this, the argument yeah. is radically
2: <laughs> radically. So the standard, you know, uh, what, what happens in Europe in the, how does Europe change in the 19th century? The standard Uh, argument, and I think it has everything to do with grain, is that you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire that are very important and suddenly very unimportant by the end of the 19th century. And you have three um, kind of relative, well, you have Germany, which is a a set of independent principalities, uh, primarily, which are constantly fighting with each other for 300 years. And Italy, which is broken up into all of these different pieces, both of them consolidate and become powerful states. France becomes a more powerful state uh, in this period. All three of them are consumers of grain. They have those ac- consumption accumulation cities that are drawing in uh, thousands, millions of bushels of grain every year. Uh, first from Europe, f- first from Russia, and then from the United States. And they tax it at a minimal level so that uh, it doesn't make it too cheap, to, uh, too expensive to, for people to eat, but they shave enough off that it allows these massive states to emerge. Mm-hmm. and this is this is the foundation of of World War One and World War Two. Is is Germany, France, and Italy as powerful states previously? Uh, you know, France had been important for a long time, but Germany and Italy had been kind of bit players for uh, hundreds of years in Europe. And suddenly, the those three and their conflict with each other in relation to Russia is really important for understanding world wars one and two and so i call them people call them the great powers of europe i call them the grain powers of europe because they they're consuming a great deal of grain um uh, largely from the united states
1: and austria um steps on their own their own sh- right. foot feet um because of their extremely complex internal taxation apparatus it's really kind of awful they have a natural advantage in terms of as a grain producer in this in both you know, prior to this world and then in the midst of this late 19th century, and they ruin it for themselves with bad, with bad administration.
2: They do. I mean, it's it's uh, p- partly it's anti-Semitism, you know, feeling that the Jews inside Austria are benefiting somehow from this. Partly it's, you know, the Banat region in Hungary is the place where a lot of this grain comes from. There's a lot of flour, very high quality flour that comes out of uh, Austria, Hungary. But, um, but this flour is ultimately replaced by... Um, by grain and, and even cheap flour from the United States and, and from Russia. But, but uh, yeah, so it goes from being the, uh, you know, in the 14th, 15th and 16th century, the place where food came from
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, to being a place that's uh, basically eclipsed. And so the, the places that sell flour before, uh, or or the, that depended on flour before Austria-Hungary and Ottoman Empire collapse in this period.
1: So uh, before we uh, tie this up, um... I love- Well, well, we do have to talk about Parvus. Parvus, Parvus. Alexander Israel uh, Helphand, who is not as well known as other uh, pseudonyms, uh, noms de guerre, um, noms de plume of his buddies like Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin. Um, But... (laughs) amazingly enough he was uh he wasn't killed by any of them which was kind of amazing uh he died in his bed kind of uh maybe someone else's not sure and he uh but yet he was somehow well anyway you tell him because it was this supposed to be a book i was wondering if this was supposed to be a book about him at first and it became a Uh. book about crane or did you discover him in the course of this
2: So, so I've been obsessing about grain for this a long time. This has been my white whale, right? Telling the story of grain and Europe. And I've, I've um, been, been, you know, going all the way back to my first book, uh, understanding the power of cheap wheat uh, in terms of understanding the clan and things like that was, was, I started to see how this world works. I started to make these arguments. And then I realized that I was uh, unknowingly plagiarizing this, (laughs) this, uh, Enormously fat, not enormously fat, quite large uh, uh, communist from Eastern Europe. Trouble was he wrote in German, Russian, and Ukrainian, and I didn't know about these things. And um, I, yeah, I was reading Rosa Luxemburg's letters. I was okay. going to do this as
1: other as, book. One, as one does,
2: as one does. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I said, uh, and uh, I was going to do this other book on called "The Four Horsemen of the Liberal Apocalypse." It was going to be a parallel biographies of. Freud, um, Chekhov, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Dwight Moody. And, um, I was, <laughs> and, uh, that book is still, uh, in my head, but, uh, anyways, I'm reading Rosa Luxemburg's letters and, uh, she says, everything I know about the grain trade and the mass strike I learned from Parvis i thought who is this guy parvis and then i realized that all these things i had been saying about grain and the 1873 crisis and the way way in which europe is rearranged and the united states ex- depending on grain for for international expansion and all these other th- such sorts of things that i had been arguing from the from documents i realized that parvis had been saying a hundred years before me uh and parvis is this guy's a grain trader and he's the person who's behind, the power behind the throne. He's the person who puts together Iskra, the spark, which is the Bolshevik, uh, well, the uh, Socialist Party a newspaper, the, both the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks initially together are, are in it. He's the one who funds it. He's the one who's got the printing press. And he hates the Russian Empire. He wants it. And, and he sees this competition from America, watches it happen from Odessa, and he starts to, to see the world again through these black paths. And he tells that story in, in very kind of obscure newspaper <laughs> uh, editorials that, that it took me a long time to translate from German and then other really obscure uh, things that he wrote in Russian. Uh, but, but what he sees is this sort of international web of grain and how it makes weaknesses and strengths all over the world. And he's the person, Marvis is somebody you've not heard of, but he is the person who sends, who persuades the German government in the middle of World War I to send a sealed train of Bolsheviks to the Finland station in Russia to start the Russian Revolution. But he, um,
1: but, but, uh, but, but he very much does not go with them.
2: No, no. He, he likes. He's not. He tries to stand between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. He does, He's he's a he's a communist, but he's not. Uh, he's not a big fan of Lenin, especially. But he understands that Lenin is going to be important and powerful, and he ends up supporting Lenin by providing an alternative source of grain. Um, well, it's 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 a complicated story. It's a complicated but story. He yeah. Basically, feeds Germany in the midst of the famine winter. I, I just, from w- and grain. for
1: those of us uh, who like to see lefties arguing, if you want for a good time, go check out the Spartacist dictionary or entries, encyclopedia entries on, on, uh, on Parvis, because obviously, you know, I, I think some comrades still might end up with a bullet in the back of their neck over, over loyalties to Parvis. It's, it's been, he's been dead for a hundred years, but still he obviously arouses, he arouses strong feelings
2: he's a very controversial person um and in fact he's he's a center of many conspiracy theories right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many conspiracy theories about him and that and people have not wanted to touch barbus uh before because of all these anti-semitic conspiracies yeah. about you know the mastermind of the revolution or the whatever and i think i just am sort of i'm, I'm not an anti-semite i'm not uh right i'm not, i don't see a jewish bolshevik conspiracy here I do think, though, that Parvis's understanding of this is crucial to understanding how Russia is on un- the Russian Empire is on. The
1: the anti-Semitic conspiracies, I guess, because he's so obviously a wealthy man. Is this the is this the connection of the financier, the the Jewish financier, with communists? So I, he's like right. he's like the one example that can be found. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He he remi- right. he reminded me a lot more of the uh, the academic Marxist in the David Lodge novel, which is Small World. Who uh, who don't wish to, as they say, do not wish to uh, avoid the uh, not. They want to enjoy the pleasures of the world prior to the revolution. There's no reason to be restrained by bourgeois morality. Uh, that's kind of parvis. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, the anti-Semitic story is, you know, you look you look at these German newspapers and they talk about the Jewish communist millionaires. Yeah, think, exactly. Who the is that? hell That's is this? This he, is the only one. He's the <laughs> only <other> one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so uh, yeah, but so, so his understanding of the world, I'm trying to give us a kind of understanding of how Grain Trader thinks about the world. Yeah. He's the basically the person who supports the Turkish Empire in its yeah. uh, ability to stave off Um, you know, France and Great Britain at Gallipoli. I mean, he's the person who actually buys the artillery uh, and stations it near Gallipoli to defend Turkey, to prevent the, uh, because he understands how important those Straits of the Bosporus are. He understands that if the Straits of the Bosporus are opened, um, Germany will lose, mm-hmm. and and so so and he he's a communist, but he supports the German Empire in this time not because he loves Germany, but because he hates Russia, mm-hmm. he hates the Russian Empire. Uh, so so anyways, he's he's got he's he's like a what's the word? Um, uh, Forrest Gump, who sort of shows up in all of these important events in uh, the the World War One, and he's not the mastermind. That the, the but but he is he does understand how important this is, and he's also the person who helps Trotsky understand how to build a communist state and watch the Turkish Empire. Is
1: probably. he um it's really interesting that I, I hadn't realized he's also a connection, I guess, between war socialism in Germany and and in and, and, and Russia. I mean, but he he's right. there. I don't know if he said it we just say he's not a mastermind but if he's not advising Ludendorff he's certainly a very well aware a very keen observer of what Ludendorff is doing in in Germany in 1718 and uh, yeah. and able to then translate that into Russian as it were literally perhaps
2: right and he right and he's he is uh, I mean there are letters that we have uh, where there's regular communication with Ludendorff about what it is the Parvis is doing, oh. and, and so yeah, so so it's it's clear that Parvis is the uh, the person who, uh, as as the Germans see it, building up you know a revolutionary force inside Russia will take power take weight off the Eastern Front so that mm-hmm. they can win the war on the in the West. So it's in Germany's interest really to support a revolution in Russia uh parvis is the person who does that but and and also to feed russia and and parvis figures out how to feed uh sorry how to feed germany and Parvis figures out how to feed germany Mm -hmm. from uh it's along the baltic because he understands how that grain is moving
1: what um i was pleased to see that you've got another book that's about to uh be birthed um what, what what's that one about and uh no you don't whoops coming out with unc press Oh yeah It <laughs> gave me a bad moment there. I, I know I talked to far too many authors, but this is ridiculous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that book. Yeah. Uh, I have a book on the on the Bourbon South that's coming out. Uh history of the uh, sorry, it's it was supposed to be the part of this big sprawling uh history of the South. series that was sponsored by unc press and it's about the bourbon period and i what's funny about it is that i finished it you know almost three years ago but there have been lots of uh there have been lots of snafus with uh covid and with you know (sighs) editors moving and taking other jobs When's that that.
1: come out because then we get to talk about that because that'll that'll be uh
2: that'll be 2022 i think that's next year uh, that's 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 next year that's a couple weeks away
1: I, just want to, I want to warn you about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still living
2: in 1873, so uh, oh, um, yeah. So that's about the Bourbon South, and that's the, uh, kind of an attempt to understand. It's it's a kind of environmental history and women's history and all these other sorts of histories uh, mixed together. And uh, probably yeah, this was the white girl. probably about agricultural
1: commodities and agricultural. and the changing of railroad gauges. I'm betting.
2: Yes, uh, but also about uh, rickets and uh, uh, you know so so just as in the late nineteenth century rickets and scurvy and parvis uh, sorry rickets and scurvy and all these other diseases of poor people typhus go away in Europe they come back Mm -hmm. with a vengeance in the American South in the seventies eighties and nineties and for the same reason uh, because much of the grain is coming from. Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio over long distances.
1: Okay, well, I have to say this is a—it's a fantastic book, and we haven't even scratched like half of the, the stuff in it, including <laughs> yeah. in which the a professor of humanities uses a stats package, which I can't do that. But um, we that that how that how you came to do that will be a story for another day. Scott Nelson, thank you so much for being part of historically thinking
2: thanks so much al it's so great to be here it's so great to talk to somebody that knows medieval history and ancient history and all uh, these other parts of history that i can that, that can actually hear me about these things on my other day. people's eyes glaze over when i talk about on the my Aristotle. day on my day yeah <laughs> 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 all right bye-bye <sighs> okay thanks again bye
1: Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, PodChaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.